Good morning, brothers and sisters. Remain standing uh, as we read God's Word, reading the same passage as we did last week from Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25, the crown of the Lord's creation. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from man into a woman and brought her to man. And the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The one will be, this one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and the wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, the heavens and all of creation declare your glory. And yet when we stare at the majestic Tetons, you would turn our head and remind us that the people to our left and right are of greater beauty and of greater majesty because they are your image. Forgive us for our blindness and our contempt to attempt to objectify and even demean your image bearers. Help us to be thankful for those who are around us and cherish what you deem most sacred. Glorify your name today through the preaching of your word. Anoint Pastor Ryan to convict the heart of stubborn men to practice repentance and to build up other men who, find, who need to find their identity and confidence in your finished work of creation. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I'm thankful that we get to worship this morning. Welcome to any of us or any of you who are visiting, uh, either in person or via the live stream. We miss you all, as Pastor Daniel was saying. I think I can confidently say this. These past five months have been fun for no one. Amen? Amen. I think I can confidently say that. But I want to remind us real quick that we as Christians can rest in our sovereign Lord. And we can rest particularly in that He is working out all things for our good and all things for His glory. Amen? We need to believe that during this time. We need to. So if you weren't able to join us last week, we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on a device. Last week's message and today's have an overarching title of the Christ-exalting marriage. So last week we looked at from verses 1 through 6, the Christ-exalting wife. We looked at how she submits to the leadership of her own husband, not all men, but of her own husband, and how she honors and affirms him in that role. We looked at how her adornment is one that never fades. It is a gentle and quiet spirit that is actually a condition of the soul and not a personality trait. We saw how her supreme hope in God above all else fuels in her a fearlessness while living in this fallen world. She is a woman who rightly fears God, and because of that, she is fearless. But what is the other side of the coin in marriage? What is the role and the responsibility of a husband on this side of eternity? That's what we're going to look at today. And much will be referenced from last week. I still want to take a moment and remind us, though, of the effects of the fall on our marriages. How since the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, of Adam's and Adam and Eve's transgression of God's command, how since that time there have been sin in our lives, and that means sin in our marriages. So the ideal headship and submission relationship between a man and a wife is distorted, and it's marred, and it's often extremely difficult. So as we looked at, the sinful tendency of many wives is to not want to submit, to rebel 
against the leadership of their husbands. And the sinful tendency of many husbands is to not want to actively lead. Therefore, they revert to either one of two things, either domineering relationship with their wife and their sin, or one that is defined by passivity. Now, as I said last week, if that domineering has turned into domestic violence or physical abuse, then call the police. Call us. We will do all that we can to help. That is never how these passages are to be understood. But to focus on the other side of the coin for a moment, on that second reality that the fall has brought about, and it's this. Men in general have become passive whether through the downgrading of masculinity through our culture and society or through a natural tendency to allow someone else to lead or through an unhealthy marriage where the wife has to do everything, the sinfulness of passivity has affected all of us as men to some degree. Adam's failure to step up as the serpent was deceiving his wife and then his subsequent excuse of blaming her when God questioned him reveals how this passivity rears its head in our marriages. So we as men, we fail to step up and lead. And then we make excuses as to why or why not when confronted about it. So guard your hearts, men, against that this morning. May the Spirit convict us all. A good pastor friend of mine wrote the following on his blog concerning absent fathers. But really, there is much similarity here for a passive husband. Matt writes, as sons of Adam, the propensity to hide is in all of us. Hiding out for a few extra hours in the office is easier than coming home to do the hard work of parenting. And we could add husbanding, if that's a word. It's much easier to hide out in the basement watching TV than to gather the family together for prayer. Fatherlessness can take different shapes and sizes. A family can be fatherless even when dad is physically on the premises. Even when the husband is physically on the premises. Fatherlessness is a problem for families when dad is there, but he's not there. He's in the house, but he's entirely absent. He is disengaged and disinterested. He is present, but not spiritually, emotionally, intentionally, lovingly, authoritatively, and didactically invested in his wife and children. He is hiding from God, and he's hiding from his wife, and he's hiding from his kids. I think what Matt wrote is very true. And if I could, allow me to paint this passivity in a broad stroke. What does the culture present to us that men are like? The man works, he comes home, he eats dinner, maybe says goodnight to the kids, he cracks open a beer, he watches the game till 10.30, and then he asks his wife if she wants to be intimate. That's the type of men that we have leading today. Never mind all the opportunities he missed to serve her and to build her up since coming home, to clean up around the house, to mentally and physically engage with her and the kids, to clean up after dinner, to help with bedtime. Never mind any of those things. This man is infected with passivity. And so what we need in our marriages and within the church today is for us to be marked by repentance for where each of us, husbands and wives, have failed. We need to be marked by the ability to show grace and forgiveness to our spouse for those failings. We need all of us collectively, the church, to have a better understanding of what the biblical role for a husband and a wife is. And how when those roles are properly understood and exercised and lived out, it makes our marriages not just something to be a part of, but something that flourishes and is a testimony of God's goodness to a fallen world. We, 
in our marriages in a smaller way model this beautiful relationship between Christ and his church, which proclaims the light of the gospel into a dark and sinful world. So as we land on 1 Peter this morning, allow me to remind us of some of the context. The heading for the entire section, as we looked at last week, comes in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter has something to say to us concerning our relationship, really our witness to an unbelieving world. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, that is our identity as a Christian today, as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. We are strangers and exiles in a world awaiting a perfected and a new one. And while we wait, Peter says that it is our conduct that is a testimony in part to a fallen world. It reveals the, uh, the glory of God to this world. So Peter shows us then what submission and authority looks like. After verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he has different sections. We looked at what does submission and authority look like in relation to governing authorities. Many of us have been wrestling with that. And then we looked at what does it look like in terms of an occupation and the relationship of a servant to a master. And now, last week and this week, we're seeing what submission and authority looks like in the sphere of the home. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, so he's continuing the same thought. He dealt with wives, and now he's on to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the men and women and the marriages that are represented in this room and watching uh, over the live stream. And I pray simply now that you would be glorified. I pray that we recognize that your word speaks to us and it transcends over all cultures and times and it has something to inform us about how our marriages are to be lived out and to flourish. So may that be true of us. May we listen with humble hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My friends, with our time this morning, I want to draw out four characteristics of a Christ-exalting husband. Four characteristics. I realize I had four last week, but it's honestly just how the text worked out. So, four things a godly man and husband does. The first is this. He leads to the glory of God. He leads to the glory of God. As with last week, I want us to see how both submission and headship, that is leadership in the home, are to be done to the glory of God. And this entire point that I'm making here is really assumed and demonstrated from both this passage and the Ephesians 5 passage where Paul deals with this. And after looking at the role and calling of a Christian wife like we did last week, Peter now turns to the role and calling of a Christian husband. How does a Christian husband act out his God-given role as the head of the wife? How does he lead her in a God-honoring and God-fearing way? Those are the questions we're going to seek to answer this morning. But this husband, this vital truth that's represented in these two passages, this husband leads to the glory of God. That is his calling, his role, his primary vocation, if you will. He is the head of his home to the glory of God. 
So last week I gave you a definition of biblical submission. This week allow me to give you one for biblical headship. And it's this. Biblical headship that is biblically leading is the divine calling of a husband to lovingly lead, honor, and protect his wife in a Christ-like manner. Biblical headship is the divine calling of a husband to lovingly lead, honor, and protect his wife and family in a Christ-like manner. We recognize that we as men and women, wives as husband, wives and husbands, cannot do this role perfectly all the time. But we nonetheless, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are called to work hard in these roles. That's what I want us to see. So a Christian husband recognizes that just as a Christian wife is called to submit to his leadership, he needs to be actively leading in such a way that it both builds up his wife and honors Christ as Lord. In other words, if we're going to call a wife to submit, we would hope, husbands, to be able to lead in such a way that she enjoys submitting to our leadership. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And then he tells us the command in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, the way a wife submits to her husband should be, in part, a picture of how the church submits to Christ. And the way a husband leads his wife should be, in part, a picture of how Christ leads the church. Collectively, then, our marriages give us a greater picture of our place in the gospel. And when these things are done rightly, it brings glory to God. But notice from these two passages the command for husbands from Peter and from Paul. Peter says, husbands, live with your wives. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. So husbands, leading will most manifest itself through how you love and cherish your wife. Leading will most manifest itself through how you love and cherish your wife. Leading is not the right to command her. Leading is not the right to control her. Good luck with that. Rather, it is the responsibility to love her like Christ, to lay down your life for your wife in servant leadership. As you live with your wife, there are some questions then that we're going to ask. As you live with your wife, what does an active role of leadership look like in your home? You need to be able to clearly answer this. Does your leadership show itself to be active? Does it show itself to be sacrificial as Christ loved the church by laying down his life for her? Do you sacrifice your wants and your desires to better love her? Or do you always need your time away, your time alone, your time with the boys? Are you more than just physically present, but emotionally and mentally present as well? Make sacrifices to demonstrate your leadership and to demonstrate your love for her. Let me give you a silly example. When I get home from work, I'll often ask my beautiful wife how her day was. Now my wife, God bless her, will give me a minute-by-minute account of the day. What she did with the kids. Who she visited with and encouraged. How did the kids act up that day? Where did they go that day? It can literally take 25 to 30 minutes. I'm not kidding. Now, men, we aren't always like that. 
when she asks the question of how my day is, I have learned that she is looking for more than just good. She's looking for more than that. She wants to hear what I did, who I met with, what I debated the other pastors over. She wants the details. My mind is like, this is exhausting. I don't want to revisit everything I did today. But she loves me. She enjoys hearing about my day. A simple way that I can sacrifice my wants is to be mentally engaged with her and to include her in my day. Now, I know that that's a silly example, but each of us husbands, each of us will have to recognize that it will be different in our own homes. We will have to work at it and to figure out what that sacrificial love looks like in our marriages. And likewise, a part of this leading is that God created us to be men who work. The creation mandate to work is pre-fall. It's a good thing in and of itself, but like everything else, it is corrupted. But we are created to work hard in life. But we need to remember, what we need to remember, is that the work calling is still applicable in the home, as a husband and as a father. So yes, you might be exhausted from a long day's work, but in many cases, so is your spouse. In some measure, we often expect more from our wives than we, are will- we ourselves are willing to put out. However, we are called as the leaders of our families to exhaust ourselves, even if it means daily, in order to fulfill our calling as leader. So you come home and you're mentally and physically tired. You have worked hard to the glory of God, but now that work to the glory of God is going to take place in the home. So you come home, you're mentally, physically tired, and you have three rugrats pounce on you. What do you do? You wrestle them. You give mom a break. You notice what can be picked up around the house. You ask her what she needs from you. You help with putting them down. You connect with your wife while they are asleep. While you have been off working, so is she. You lead by taking initiative in the home just like you would at work. And when you are exhausted, you go to bed exhausted to the glory of God. And then you sleep and you wake up and you do it again. That is your calling. I'm preaching to myself here. And lastly, but definitely not least, what does leading your wife spiritually look like in your home? Do you encourage her in her Bible reading, in her prayer, in her meditation on the Word? When was the last time you prayed with your wife outside of church? Do you notice when you yourself are slacking in your devotions and how that affects both her and your family? Do you come alongside her and your family and demonstrate a Christ-like love and care for her spiritual health? Do you earnestly desire to see her mature in the faith, to grow in holiness, to flourish under your leadership? Are these things at the forefront of your mind? Don't tell me it's too much. From sports teams to fishing and hunting to any other hobby you might have, we can learn and memorize some facts real fast. I know way too much about Oklahoma football and the Dallas Cowboys, okay? Quiet. (laughs) So don't tell me it's too much work. Part of your leadership means spiritually leading your home. You are called to do that, and you will give an account one day for how you did it. Don't neglect your spiritual health or hers. It's part of your leadership. So we are called to lead to lead by sacrificially loving our spouses and our families, to exhaust ourselves for them mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So my prayer for us is that we, as the men of Christ Community Church, embrace that calling and live it out to the glory of God.
The second characteristic of a Christ-exalting husband is this. He understands who God has made her to be. He understands who God has made her to be. The text says this, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Men, how often have we been around other men and we've heard the joke, man, I'll just never understand women. I'll just never understand them. Well, this is true. But guess what, guys? You don't have to understand all women. You only have to understand one woman. Live with your wife in an understanding way. The text there literally says, according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. In other words, you have to work at getting to know her, at seeking to understand her, of desiring to learn more about her. Not all women, just the one woman that God has gifted to you. Seek to understand her for her rather than trying to make her some womanly version of yourself. When counseling a young married couple, I can't tell you how often, it never fails to amaze me how much we as men really just love ourselves. If our wives were like us, all the marital problems would disappear. But we can't fall for that trap. God has gifted her in different ways. She is different than you. Recognize that. Understand it. Embrace it. A Christ-exalting husband recognizes just that very thing, and he works at it. So last week, just as we saw that submission takes work on the part of the wife, so does understanding her take work on the part of the husband. And, and husbands, hear me clearly. Be a lifelong learner of your wife. She is not the exact same woman you married. I've only been married eight years, and I can tell you that. She is not the exact same woman you married. She will have a different strength today that she used to not have, but she might also have a different weakness She might have had a certain dream in life while younger, but now she has a different one. She might have loved milk chocolate for 16 years, but now she likes dark chocolate. So get her dark chocolate. No, understand and learn how she has changed in both small things and grand things. She's not the same woman you married. And men, this includes her love languages. How many of you remember that book that came out years ago? The five love languages, acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time, giving gifts, and physical uh, physical touch. There's probably some truth in this. Maybe there's more. I don't know. That's not the point. Men, we are typically pretty easy to categorize. We usually begin and end in the realm of physical touch, and we tend to stay the same over the years. Again, I'm speaking generally, so just show some grace, all right? But men, your wife is not like you. She might have loved your words of affirmation for the first five years of marriage, but then you add in two kids and a baby on the way, and I guarantee you she would love the act of service of you doing the dishes, of you vacuuming and cleaning up around the house. Learn this. Learn her. And realize that not only can her love language change by the year, but by the month or even by the week, it's probably written down in the marriage agreement somewhere that she can change it by the day if she wants. All right? Be a student. Embrace it. The text says, live with her according to knowledge. Get to know her and continue to get to know her well over the life of your marriage. Let me tell you where I gloriously failed in this. I remember some months back during the winter, my wife called me while I was working here in the office and she said that the power went out. In my typical understanding Ryan way, I say, I'm sorry. Thanks for letting me know. And I hope it comes back on. And then I went back to work. I went back to work, and I honestly didn't even think about it for the next three hours. Now think of what is going on at my house. 
During the winter at this time, we had a rambunctious four-year-old and a two-year-old girl. We also have a newborn in the house. There's snow outside, and so it's probably too much to get them dressed and let them play for 10 minutes before they're freezing and want to come back in. She also probably wants to conserve the heat since the power's off. There's no hot water, no power to the oven, so she can't begin dinner. The kids are extra crazy because the lights are off and mom lit a candle, so now everything is just super cool. You couple these details with the fact that, as my wife loves to say, I get to have adult conversations all day while she has conversations with the kids. And lastly, she was also battling some postpartum depression. So, yours truly comes waltzing in after a few hours after that call at my normal time for coming home. And even though I knew the power was out, I didn't think anything of it. We're men. We adapt. We overcome, right? And she's probably thinking, I wish he would have tried to come home early. Maybe picked up something to eat on the way home. At least acknowledge the difficulty of the situation. But again, I come waltzing in. Kids are going crazy. And yours truly says something to the effect of, you haven't even started dinner? Now, men, (laughs) I had gloriously failed to understand my wife that day. To take her into consideration. I was consumed with my responsibilities and my duties that I never stopped to think of her difficulties. Fight against that. Fight to, as I said, know and understand and learn your wife, even if it means daily. Your marriage will be blessed and better for it. Third characteristic is this. Christ's exalting husband honors her as a co-heir. He honors her as a co-heir. Look at the text. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. I want to say this clearly. The way you seek to understand your wife will reveal itself in how you honor her. The way you seek to understand your wife will reveal itself in how you honor her. These go hand in hand. Peter instructs the Christian husband to live with his wife in an understanding way and to show her honor as the weaker vessel. So there are some things that we need to uncover here. First, what does it mean to honor? To honor your wife means to esteem her, to hold her in high regard, to value her, and to cherish her. It means to make it clear in speech and in conduct that she is a gift from God that you dearly value, and others recognize that about you. Think on this for a moment. Your children growing up in your home are learning what marriage means by watching you and your spouse. Is that an encouraging thought or a scary one? What example, husbands, do we want to set for them? You better believe when I mess up in my house, when daddy is rude to mommy, I'm pulling Jed and Blake over and I'm apologizing to them. I'm telling them what I did was not okay. I asked for their forgiveness. I apologized to their mom in front of them. I asked for her forgiveness. And in some small measure there, I want them to see the gospel at work. I desire for that to happen in my home. I want them to see clearly, again, not perfectly, for none of us is perfect except for Christ, but I want them to see clearly, daily, weekly, yearly, that dad loves mom, that mom loves dad, and that dad honors her, and he thinks of her in a high regard. We need the next generation coming up behind us to have a firsthand view of a Christ-exalting marriage. So he honors her. And Peter clarifies this phrase by telling us this, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. This is where it gets fun. He honors her 
as the weaker vessel. What does this mean? I don't take the weaker vessel language to imply weaker intellectually, spiritually, or morally. I don't think you can get that from the context here or from your Bible as a whole. But what the debate has centered around within the church is one of three things. Does this language mean physically weaker, emotionally weaker, or both? I primarily take this language to be in the physical sense. But there is a warning within the emotional sense. So let me clarify the emotional argument first. Got real quiet in here on this, so here we go. We've all heard the language and the stereotypes thrown out that women are more emotional than men. And there are some scientific and psychiatric studies that do show this. So I think it is probably fair to say that generally speaking, women have easier access to their emotions than men do. But is that what Peter means here? Is that the question he's answering? Does emotionality equal weakness? I don't think so. Emotions in and of themselves are a gift from God. They help us experience this life in wonderful ways. As someone who is reminded often by both my wife and Pastor Daniel here that I have very subdued emotions, I recognize that emotions in and of themselves are a great thing. But like other parts of us, the fall has corrupted them. And we must fight daily to be in control of them. So the display of emotion is in no way a sign of weakness. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his seminal essay, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, the theologian B.B. Warfield clearly shows that Jesus displayed a perfect range of emotions. Love, joy, anger, sorrow, just to name a few. But the emotion, Warfield concludes, that Jesus displayed the most was this, compassion. He was marked by his compassion and his mercy. Generally speaking, women are more compassionate than men, more merciful. So I don't think the argument just does not follow from this text that a greater display of emotions equates to weakness. But here is the warning. As I said with the fall, we never want to be ruled by our emotions, for that does signify weakness. When your emotions and how you feel about something are telling you one thing, and God's word is clearly telling you something else, then we as Christians understand which one of those takes precedence. We submit our lives, including our emotions and our affections, to the truth revealed in the word. So no, emotions are not a sign of weakness, but emotions unchecked are. And this can happen in both men and women. Guys, ever been to a sports bar? See some dudes yelling at the TV during a game? They display their emotions as well, just in different contexts. We aren't the only, women are not the only emotional creatures. So again, I don't take emotions or even the greater display of emotions to be a weakness. The fall affects us all in various ways. But as I said, I do take this language to be primarily physical. The average man is larger and stronger than the average woman. That is clear to a reasonable person. That is why we've always had men's and women's sports, men's and women's Olympics. There are clear physical differences between the two sexes. But I recognize as well that we live in a culture that is in many measures trying to erase these distinctions. But that is simply absurd. We all recognize it. 
It's absurd to think that there are no clear physical differences. In fact, the Christian view of this is that there are physical differences, and that's a beautiful thing because that is how God created us. So I think also that the physical interpretation of this text finds strength when you do a word study on the word vessel. Where else is that used? Quite a few places, but I think two in particular are helpful. Paul used it in Romans 9 to describe their vessels of wrath, clearly an indication of physical beings awaiting judgment. But I think in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, we have the most help. Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars, that is vessels, same word, of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul, contextually here, is talking about having the power of God, the gospel, shining in our hearts and changing us where we have the Spirit living within us now. But the amazing thing about this, Paul's saying, is that this is all happening in an earthen vessel. In a vessel, a body that is aging and wasting away in some measure. So again, in verse 16, he's going to say it's wasting away, clearly physical. So the weaker vessel is primarily relating to physicality. The majority of wives are not as physically strong as their husbands, and that's perfectly okay. And so what Peter is encouraging the Christian husband here to do, though, is to honor her as such. That's how he says it. Honor her as the weaker vessel. In this time and in this culture, the concept of paterfamilias reigned in society, What the father said of the house was law for the house, even to the point of death. He could execute any member of his house that he wanted to. And Peter here, encouraging a Christian husband, does so in a beautifully countercultural way. He encourages the Christian husband to not reign like a tyrant, to not show headship through domination or abuse, to not use his greater physical strength to rule his wife but rather to honor her and cherish her as a gift from God. Men, because of the fall, you will have the temptation in your life to disdain that which is weaker than you. You have the temptation to disdain that which is weaker, to crush it. So husbands, when you sense a vulnerability in your wife, either physically or emotionally or a weakness within her, the sinful temptation for you is going to be to crush it to take advantage of it. Never do that. Resist that temptation at all costs. Honor her. Value her. Uphold her. Come alongside her and lead her. Treat her with gentleness and love and respect. And similar to last week, being physically weaker does not mean that women are inferior to men at all. Women give birth. They're very tough, okay? Women are not less than men any more than my eye or my brain, which are both incredibly sensitive and physically vulnerable, are less than my elbow. This is not at all an issue of worth, but of recognizing the God-given differences between the two of us and recognizing that this is a very good thing. Amen? And Peter further clarifies this honor that she is to receive as one who is an heir, a co-heir with your husband of the grace of life. As I mentioned, the potter familis, it meant that the, the male heir received everything. But Peter here reminds them of what is it like in, the, in God's kingdom. Rather than just the male inheriting everything, she, a woman of God created in the image of God, is a co-heir of this future grace that we as Christians will all experience. It is as Paul writes in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Our salvation does not depend on if we are a man or a woman. There is complete equality and unity in Christ. You, husband, are an adopted son of God. She, your wife, is an adopted daughter of God, and our share, our inheritance in eternity, will be equal, meaning we both have eternal life. Praise God for that. So husbands, in this text, you are called to treat her, to honor her, to cherish her as such. She is God's partner for you in this life of gospel mission, and she is to be valued as such. This brings us to the last characteristic of a Christ-exalting husband, and it is this. He fears the one who sees all. He fears the one who sees all. Let me read the whole verse once more and pay close attention to the end. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, in order that, your prayers may not be hindered. That's a sobering statement, is it not? Peter instructs us as men that if we fail to live with our wives in an understanding way, if we fail to show them honor as the weaker vessel and as a co-heir in Christ, then your prayers will be hindered. In other words, men, there is a connection between how you treat your wife and your relationship with God. We cannot expect to have certain things in conformity with God's word over here and then have a whole other area over here that is in complete rejection of it. And the reason that I have entitled this point, he fears the one who sees all, is that we as men need to have a healthy awe and a fear of God. This will change the way you lead. We need to be captivated by this God that can consume us, yet at the same time draws us into fellowship with him through Christ. The very God who calls us to lead as his son did. We need to be reminded of these things. We need to be reminded that he sees all things. He sees when we fail and when we fall short. He sees those moments where you're disrespectful to her, where you're unloving to her, where you are uncaring and you're harsh. He sees them all. We can't hide them. We can't think that there are uh, sinful areas of our life that are just because they're hidden from others means that they're hidden from God. That's foolishness. He sees all things. And look in chapter 3 there. Even Peter is going to go to this very point a few verses later in verse 12 where he draws from the Psalms. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His eyes are on the righteous, and he hears their prayers. So husbands, by the blood of his son, he overlooks your shortcomings and your failures because you have embraced Christ as Lord. But if you are willfully sinning, if you are willfully trying to hide something, if you are willfully refusing to repent of it, then that is evil. And the face of the Lord is against you. And you should fear his coming judgment. Men, we have to be willing to confess and to repent, and we have to lead by example in this in our marriages. We have to be willing to see our marriages as beacons of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We have to seriously heed these instructions of Peter if we don't want our prayers to be hindered, if we don't want our relationship with God to be hindered. We have to lead to the glory of God. We have to understand our wives and who God has made them to be. We have to honor them as a co-heir. 
We have to truly fear the one who sees all. As with last week, allow me to ask a question from each of these points. One question, sometimes two, from each point. First is this, husbands, how are you actively leading your wife and family? Where are you failing to do so? How are you actively leading your wife and family, and where are you failing to do so? Or do you need to repent to them for maybe some months or even possibly years of passive leadership? Husbands, have you truly sought to understand your wife, or have you subtly been trying to change her to your liking? Do you recognize that she is different, and that's a beautiful thing, and that she compliments you in a beautiful way? Three, husbands, is it clear that you honor and value your wife in the way that you talk about her, in the way you talk about her with family and friends? Is it clear to others in how you communicate about her that she's a precious gift from God and that you, her husband, truly believe that? You don't disdain her through your speech. Four, lastly, husbands, men, really all of us, do we truly fear the God that sees all? The God that knows our deepest and darkest sins and yet still loves us? Or are we trying to hide something in the dark? Something we're fa- we are failing to confess? May it never be so for the men at Christ Community Church. As with last week, the good news is the same this week. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God for sending his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and redeem a wayward and broken people. We realize, husbands and wives, that we can't do this on our own. We realize we fall short. So if there's conviction in your heart right now, praise God for it. That means the Spirit is at work in your life. But I pray that both last week and this week, you didn't hear me preaching that we need to be perfect wives and perfect husbands. We know we can't. Like David says in the Psalms, our sins, our shortcomings are ever before us. We know what we have done. But look to Christ when you fall short. Look to your perfect Savior and be men and women, wives and husbands who show grace and love to one another, who show forgiveness when there's repentance in the marriage. In a world devoid of those things, we are called as Christians to be something radically different. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word. I praise you that you have revealed yourself through it and primarily revealed yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. And both last week and this week, as we walk through this text, we realize, many of us, where we fall short. We realize where we are failing to lead or failing to submit. So I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would convict where we need convicting, that you would encourage by your Spirit that we would confess that, that we would repent of it, And by the power of your spirit, day by day, seek to walk with you and live out our God-given roles in our marriages. May you be glorified from this. May the marriages of Christ's community be strengthened. May they be a beacon to this community and to the world as a whole. Christ's name we pray. Amen.